0: Hello and welcome to the Countryside Voices podcast with CPRE, the countryside charity. I'm Jamie Wyver. A beautiful starry sky is one of the most magical sights the countryside has to offer. But light pollution is stopping many of us from seeing the stars and it also has a big impact on wildlife. In this episode, we'll be talking about the results of our annual star count and what can be done to reclaim our dark skies. We'll also be finding out more about the fascinating world of bats. Joining me today are CPRE's Emma Marrington and Joanna Ferguson from the Bat Conservation Trust.
1: Good morning. Hello there.
0: Let's look first at CPRE's star count. Back in February, we asked people to head outside, look up at the sky during a few days towards the end of the month when the moon was less bright And find the constellation of Orion, the famous mythical hunter. We asked them if they could count the number of stars they could see within the sort of central rectangle of the constellation. Loads of people took part and we were amazed by the uh, amount of people that really enjoyed it and got into it and were enthusiastic about it. We had groups of brownies and scouts and school children going out. I think we had over 2,400 people taking part. And One of the most wonderful things about the star count experience was the comments that we got back from people who'd gone out and counted those stars in the Orion constellation. Just a couple of examples for you. One person wrote in to say that they loved looking up at the beautiful night sky stars with their mum. It made them really happy and added an extra splash of happiness to their day. Another couple here. Stars bring a little magic and majesty into our lives, brings a little perspective to things. Another one said, It got me to go and sit in my backyard for 30 minutes last night. It was lovely and peaceful. Otherwise, I'd have been inside watching TV probably. So it made a nice change. And it was fortunate that we had um, fairly clear skies on a couple of those nights, and people were able to get quite a nice view of the stars above. And there's something about it that I think boosts our kind of mental well-being, lifts our mood, makes us generally happy. Emma, is that one of the reasons it's important to have a, a really good view of a starry sky, do you think?
1: Absolutely. I mean, a, a dark, starry sky is one of the most magical sights the countryside can offer. But you can also have a really good view of the, of the sky wherever you live, even in urban areas, too. And it is part of you know, its connection to part of our heritage. And as you know some of the people who commented said you look up at the stars and the stars have been that way for millennia and so it's that connection to the past and creates such wonder i think
0: and there's that cultural part of it as well i suppose people have used the stars for so many years to find their way or to dream up pictures in the sky and Mm. boost the imagination so it, it kind of has that appeal for all ages i suppose
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean when you actually think that, you know, people are, you know, and ships would have navigated by the stars oh, you know, hundreds of years ago. And as you say, you know, it's something that everybody, from, from the young people through to, you know, whatever age you are, older, you'll always have a connection. You should always have a story about maybe when when you have seen the stars or you know, your first experience of the stars. But of course not everybody has had that amazing experience yet.
0: That's a good point. and And that leads us on to the results, because 61 percent of people who took part um, counted fewer than 10 stars. And there are many, many more than that within the Orion constellation. Mm. And that means that those 61 percent of people taking part are in an area with severe light pollution. And comparing the results with last year's star count, um, we can see that's a bit of an increase. It was 57 percent last year, so it's gone up by yeah. 4%. Um there was some good news at the other end of the scale, we th- see that 3% of people um, were counting more than 30 stars within Orion. So they were in areas with truly dark skies. And that's gone up very slightly 1% from last year. What does what does that tell us? I mean, what, what does that mean for those people that are in those areas with severe light pollution? What's the what's the impact?
1: yeah of course I mean, for, for me where i live in southwest london i counted nine stars in the orion constellation which i thought was amazing actually um you know previously it been seven uh you know i think once it was five um so it is you know people are ov- obviously very used to you know in urban areas having lighting and, and you can have the light people need but with you know having well designed directional lighting then you can have the view the stars but what it means is that people are, you know, perhaps in urban areas, but also uh, you might have, you know, even if you're in a, a suburban area, a rural area, you might have a source of light pollution that is meaning that you can't get a great view of the stars. So it, it doesn't always follow that it's going to be in an urban area that you, you don't have the view of the stars. Um, although, of course, generally, you know, urban areas have more lighting, so it's going to affect it.
0: But the light does spill out, doesn't it? And you do yeah. see in, in in the countryside, it does, it does still impact you. You get that kind of sky glow, don't you, from Absolutely. near sort of filled up built up areas? Yeah. What's the main cause? What what's what's causing this problem?
1: Well, in many cases, um, street lighting, uh, you know, common issue. And just to say, I'm totally not not saying there shouldn't be any street lighting. Um, but you know, it's it's the office lighting. I mean, apparently, you know, I've read, haven't been to central London in a while, obviously, at this, uh, this current time, um, that, you know, office lighting is still on, even though offices, you know, many people are working from home at the moment. And, you know, so it can be, you know, the City of London, for example, we had, um, you know, mapping, satellite mapping of Britain's night skies um, a couple of years back, and the City of London was the brightest, you know, the most amount of light spilling up into the night sky so it's office lighting it's street lighting um it can be business lighting it can be one source of poorly directed security lighting um you know perhaps in a uh, business that's in, in the rural area so it can also be down to the individual level so if there's domestic security lighting that's poorly directed not shining down where it's actually needed that can also contribute towards the sort of the the, the glow Around, you know, towns, cities, and in the countryside, or anywhere in the country.
0: So it it sounds like we've identified that we want to see the stars. That it's, it's a good thing. It, it's it's really good for us. And actually, during these quite difficult times, where many of us are, our movements are quite restricted. Being able to look out of your window at night, or step outside your front door or your back door, stand in your garden, look up at the sky. It's it's a really it's a lovely thing when you know we're we're living under quite difficult circumstances. But, but going forward, we want to be able to have those views of the stars. So how do we make this change, Emma? How do we get that lighting properly directed, sensibly used, so yeah. that we can all enjoy that, that wonderful view?
1: There is good policy, but it's how it's implemented at the local level, that's the issue. So because it's a know local authorities councils should you know take these measures about you know existing lighting or new development with lighting um it's not a must and the guidance is very good as well but then what we need to to see happen is local authorities to councils to take more action to combat light pollution and that can be through um so all councils will have what are called local plans. So that's what sets, you know, what, they, what they're what they going to do locally. It can be like design for new development. Um, and so in those local plans, there should be strong policies to control light pollution and also protect and enhance existing dark skies within those areas too. So that's one solution. And then, of course, you know, it comes down to, you know, the careful management of street lighting. So many councils, like I said earlier, Are looking to either, you know, save money and energy. That that's really the motivation. Um, But by reducing uh, or changing their street lighting, they can, you know, save money and energy, but also the reduction in light pollution. So, you know, many councils now are introducing dimming technology. So that will mean that if you've got, you know, maybe a town centre, you could have 100% lighting in a town centre on, on a sassy night on a residential street you might have 70% lighting so it gives you that discretion to tailor the lighting and we you know have also heard of course of many councils that are switching off lighting between midnight and five in the morning and just to emphasise actually be done in consultation with the community and with the local police to ensure it's the best fit for that area so you know you have got those changes that can happen with street lighting and also through you know many councils now are uh, uh, you know, changing their street lighting so that it's more directional. LEDs uh, are a very common form of you know, street lighting when people are changing it. There is a little bit of controversy about the, the bluer rich uh, lighting um, and the impacts on human health. We, we know that mobile phones looking at that late at night with the blue lighting is bad for, for setting your biological clock, um, but you can have the warmer white LED lighting that is you know, more common, so local authorities are looking at that. So the technology's there to have the lighting that people you know, might like, but you can still have the view of the stars as well.
0: So it sounds like a win-win, really. So if councils take these steps, they're helping our health, they're helping save money, they're saving energy, they are improving the environment, we a better view of the night sky. So it all sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it? These, these are simple steps that can be taken And hopefully next year and the year after we'll start getting better views of the skies.
1: Yeah, hopefully. I mean, of course, you know, with changes to uh, lighting, you know, should emphasize, you know, councils, it does cost quite a lot of money. Um, and they can, um, in Surrey, for example, I think it was £89 million for a private finance initiative to change all of the lighting in, in Surrey to um, the renewed lighting, then a, a dimming scheme as well. So you can, it is that investment, so it is a big investment project. But like I say, there are things that can be done, you know, strong local policies by councils, um, and also down at the individual level as well.
0: So we can all take steps, can't we? And we'll, yeah. we'll talk about that a little bit when we um, chat with Joanna in a moment. So it, it, it does sound like we've identified the problem. People have gone out there, they've enjoyed looking at the night sky, and we we sort of know what the solution is. So yes. let's let's um, let's keep calling and pushing for those those changes to be made. Um, and encourage people to talk, I suppose, to their their local authorities about why they're so passionate about seeing the night sky and how important it is to them. Let's talk now about what this all means for bats. Bats are just part of um, sort of a a range of nocturnal wildlife that will be impacted by lighting, I suppose. And it's it's really interesting to think, isn't it, Joanna, that we are trying to get a view of the night sky, but at the same time, Bats are trying to find their way around too. What's the impact on these animals?
2: Um, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, the issue of the impact of artificial light pollution on our bats has been something that I've been focusing on for a number of years. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about some of the guidance that as has touched upon that we've provided for local councils to allow them to, to sort of improve how they think about lighting and they think about the environment and wildlife. Um, but it, it helps to think, when we think of of bats and their lives as nocturnal mammals we can start to see how well adapted they are to a sort of a life in darkness you've got these you know they're very fast flying they could be in cluttered areas and um, they're hunting insects they're navigating and they're doing this all in complete darkness and they're only able to do that because this they've got this amazingly highly sophisticated echolocation system and I should just say at this point that I'll bust that myth that bats aren't actually blind but um, if you can imagine being in the middle of a woodland in pitch darkness and trying to run around and find people and uh, you know you can see how difficult it would be so to have this highly sophisticated echolocation has allowed them to uh, it's allowed them to out-compete the daytime birds who also eat insects the swifts and swallows and house martins but this is the key thing when we're thinking of um when we're thinking of the impacts of light pollution it allows them to avoid predation uh, and we're really thinking by raptor species such as such as sparrowhawks or hobbies um and a case in point is that we're actually seeing peregrine falcons now, which you have, which is fantastic, made this great comeback in our cities like London, but they are actually able to hunt bats under lit conditions. So when you start thinking about that, you can really see why it's such a concern for for bats and, and feeling that threat of predation is um is kind of what drives some of the some of the impacts. Um, I think it also helps to think um it's I, I found this out not too long ago, it's really interesting that they've not just been adapted um, to a life in darkness for say tens of thousands of years or hundreds of thousands of years but you've actually got fossil records that have come out of Eastern Europe from 35 million years ago of bats that are completely recognizable flying around today so they're completely designed to be in a world of darkness and as Emma was saying you you've see the rate of light pollution um, and urbanization in just say the last 20 years you can see why it's such a major concern for them
0: How does light pollution impact the food that bats will be going for, the insects and moths that will be flitting around? Is that reducing their numbers, driving them away? What's happening to their food source?
2: So um, it's interesting that Emma touched upon um, blue-rich light sources. Um, They relate to um, quite severe impacts in terms of um, insects and therefore um, relating to bat species. So your UV-rich or blue-rich light sources are very attractive to um, species such as moths. So you're drawing them from, say, darker areas where bats would like to be to these kind of point light sources in the environment, creating this real unnatural balance. Um, It's predicted that a third of all insects that are attracted to light sources will die there through exhaustion or becoming trapped in the light fitting or being predated by some of our bat species. Um, But our bat species, our 18 bat species fall into two different groups. You've got sort of our faster flying species, which have sort of longer, more tapered wings species, such as our pipistrels, which are kind of able to opportunistically feed at these light sources. But they're still kind of putting themselves at this risk of predation. And then you've got some of our slower flying species, which are fantastic in these really dark environments, really cluttered environments. They're really maneuverable. actually in these open environments where there's this food resource they're not able to access it so it's kind of a double a double impact for them really.
0: That sounds like it's it's getting really tough out there for the bats what what can listeners do lighting wise and otherwise to help We, we mentioned earlier that as individuals we can do stuff around our homes with security lighting what what steps do you advise people take?
2: Yeah so I think it is You know, it's really important to say that yes, this this is a global problem, but there are you know things that we can all do. There are things at the development level, such as Emma's touched upon, and the guidance that we've produced for industry. But also um, individuals, like you say, um, for every homeowner, they can be just mindful about where you put lighting. Um, We are obviously uh, you know our first message is really avoiding lighting, um, but we're thinking about avoiding unnecessary lighting. So understanding where bats might be in the environment or might be around buildings um, it's really important I should say that the place where they're most vulnerable not surprisingly is where they're roosting where their females are roosting with their young and and lighting can actually stop bats coming out at night for that big upswell of insects just after dusk that's where they want to be they want to be feeding they want to the mother bats want to be able to eat as much as possible to pass that food on to their babies so lighting um, around roost sites isn't you know an absolute no-no and understanding you know where the dark habitats are that, that bats want to use in these great dark corridors through the environment and protecting those through doing things like you know emma touched upon shielding that spill uh, making sure light is only used where it's needed so on the path that you know you you want to to have for access rather than onto the he- nearby hedgerows or waterways um and things like um emma touched on dimmed lighting but you can have triggered lighting as well um just being mindful really that the lighting's there for us when we need it but when we're not there that you've got these lovely dark environments for our nocturnal species
0: i think that's a really key point here that lighting should be here when we need it in the right direction but not spilling out and affecting other people and 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 other 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 animals um so bats are pretty much everywhere um you can see them in urban areas you can see them suburban areas you can see them out in the countryside what what's the best way to kind of look out for for bats and, and and learn and understand a little bit more about these amazing animals perhaps um at the moment we could be talking about just from the home from the window or from from the garden just outside your house um, what bats might we see, and how can we how can we watch them? What's any good tips?
2: Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. We're very lucky in this country. We've got 18 species, um, but even in the middle of central London, I've been out recording bats and we've got six species being recorded in and around Victoria Station and um, 12 of our species within the M25. So then, you know, we are in tough times at the moment, but one of the, you know, one of the great things is that bats are kind of, we can bring them to us if we know what we're looking for. And I think a lot of people have probably seen bats without knowing it, which is really interesting when you start when you start looking into it. So we've actually adapted our sunset sunrise survey to now be done from the home essentially. Um, you can look out of your window from a balcony, you can sit in your garden, um, and it's either from sunset for an hour or an hour before sunrise. And all you'll need is the form that you can download for free from our website, and that's www.bats.org.uk. You just need a pen or a pencil, a torch and a watch and um, there's some really great videos online to give you an eye um, out on what you might be looking for and they're one of those things once you get your eye in you will start seeing them everywhere these dark little corners of of our green spaces um, anywhere where there might be insects that bats will be will be popping up.
0: And um, when you're kind of watching bats there's there's an element of it that's really about listening isn't there because you can with the the right equipment you can you can hear them uh, much more easily than you can see them. Is there a uh, what's what's the what's the best way to go for that? I don't know if there's apps now that you can have on your phone, or whether it's best to get a bat detector. Well, how would you advise someone who's just getting into experiencing bats? What's the best kind of equipment or technology that they they might need to look out for?
2: Yeah I mean the nice thing about the sunset sunrise is that it's it's entry level so you don't actually need anything other than getting your eye in but once you've become hooked um, and a lot of people do um, once they get started there's some really great entry-level bat detectors there's some good resources on our on our website Um, and the very basic ones are essentially you're looking at tuning into their calls so all of our bat species um, have different calls and kind of call signatures that start to give you an idea of what species we're listening to so um, you know a little bit bit of basic practice especially in our cities we've got um things like our common pipistrelle and soprano pipistrelle which are relatively easy to tell apart Uh, and so the entry-level back detectors you're listening to their echolocation calls that have been brought down to a level that we can hear them Uh, there's other fancier bits of kit um we've got some that plug into um you can plug them into your phones and turn your phones into bat detectors which is quite cool um and you're not just hearing them you can actually start to see the calls which are great for when i when i do bat walks which hopefully will be you know will be coming back to soon, um, taking people out to, to actually see the calls and actually really good for people who are maybe um, sometimes who, who can't hear as well. Um, so there's lots of different ways now. Technology is giving us a lot of different ways to plug into their into their world, which is fantastic
0: have you got have you got a sound we can listen to today, Joanna, to to hear what it sounds like coming through a bat detector?
2: I can give that a go for you. Yes. Um, Our website has got all of our UK bat species and we've got samples of their call on there. So, um, again, as you're starting to learn and we've got some really nice videos, you can start to match what you might be hearing out in the environment with what you might be seeing. So I'm just going to try and play the call now and we'll see if you can hear it.
0: was the sound of a uh, common pipistrelle I think Joanna um, and that is the most common bat is that correct?
2: Yes that was a common pipistrelle Um, the common and soprano pipistrelles are our two most common and widespread bat species um, and we're talking about a bat of about four grams in size and um, so really tiny um, but what I like about them is They're, um, you know, they're really resourceful. You'll find them throughout our cities and gardens and their calls are are quite distinctively different from each other. So they're a really nice entry level bat to start learning about and you get this kind of quite fat splatty sound I've had it described as on the bat detector. So yeah, really nice one to get started learning about those two species.
0: Thank you very much. So a lot to think about there. The light pollution that impacts our view of the stars is also having a huge effect on nocturnal wildlife, something to bear in mind definitely when we are thinking about lighting our homes, um, putting up security lighting or indeed talking to local authorities and developers about the kind of lighting that we would like to see where we are. Emma, just going back to you for one last quick question. Mm. What's your um, What's your tip on uh, perhaps engaging with those kind of local authorities or or local bodies when you want to try and have a bit of influence about about lighting? What What kind of approach do you recommend?
1: Well, people, everybody can do something about this. So, um, if they want to lobby their local council, I'd probably say. Currently, there might be diversity and other issues, um, but when things get back to, you know, some new normal, you could start, um, you know, writing to your local MP if you're concerned about a particular lighting problem. If you've got, you know, perhaps a neighbour who has a a poorly directed security light as well, that's actually um, a statutory nuisance, uh, domestic security lighting. So if it's causing a problem, if it's affecting your, your home, if you're having to... You know, I've, I've heard of people having to move bedrooms in their, in their house, get th- being told by local authorities to get thicker curtains, but as it's a statutory nuisance, in the same way the noise is, it means that you can ask your local authority to investigate, they'll probably ask you to record the issue of, of lighting, but of course, you know, you could just go, and, you know, pop to speak to your neighbour and say, can you actually look at this issue? Are you aware of this issue? Can you do anything about it? Um, But with local authorities, yes, of course, I mean, when when councils have um, reviewing their local plans, their their local documents for the area, you could try to influence those um, by commenting. Um, But you can write to your local authorities about any issues you have with light pollution. If it's a real problem and that you're not getting anywhere, you could consider writing to your local newspaper as well.
0: Some some really good ideas there. Joanna's just pointed out that there is some guidance the um, Bat Conservation Trust produced with the Institute Institution of Lighting Professionals. So that's available online as well, isn't it, Joanna?
2: Yes, it is. Yeah, we produced it in 2018 and it's a really nice guide to some of the research I've talked about, but then some of the technologies we've touched on um, and mitigation measures. That though they do focus on bats they also touch on a lot of the stuff that emma's been mentioning um you know controlling obstructive lighting um thinking about like you're saying thinking about your neighbors because really what we're talking about is you know my focus is on bats but we're talking about good lights the environment and that includes ourselves really i think we exclude ourselves from that picture quite a lot but we're all you know we're all trying to to cope with a highly lit world so yes um you can download that guidance for free from um our website.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you both very, very much for contributing today. Some really, really interesting points. And thank you, everybody, for listening. You can stay up to date with the work of CPRE, the Countryside Charity, on our website, cpre.org.uk. And we're all over social media. You can follow us on Twitter, at CPRE. Look for CPRE, the Countryside Charity, on Facebook. And CPRE is also on Instagram. Thank you very much.